This episode is sponsored by Fawn's Music. The crimes we talk about may be old-timey, but that doesn't mean we don't love the newest technology. Fawn's Music makes these amazing coasters that aren't just a place to set your drink. They're also a way for your party guests to share their favorite songs from Spotify. All your guests need to do is tap the coaster with their smartphone, pick their favorite songs, and they'll be automatically queued up to the playlist so everyone can play DJ. Fawn's coasters are spill-proof, made of high-quality PVC, and no power is required. And they're not only good for parties. Going on a road trip? Take your Fawn's coasters along so your friends can put their songs on the playlist. Everyone can rock out in the car together! So share the love of music and get $5 off with our special code, OLDTIMEY, at FawnsMusic.com. F-O-N-Z Music.com. That's Old Timey at FawnsMusic.com so they know Old Timey Crimey sent you. You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. old-timey crimey i'm christy i'm scott and i'm amber and we are here this week to tell you about some historical true crime that is going to absolutely fascinate you but before we get to that another thing that should fascinate you is our patreon that is patreon.com slash old-timey crimey and we are having a fantastic time over there amber told us a story tonight that was unbelievable, and it was uh, a crime that happened where the man who committed it became a national hero. So it was a feel-good crime. Oh my God, I want to be it, this guy so much. We were laying odds on whether Scott might be this guy when he wakes up in the morning tomorrow. So, I have or been when, this guy. This yes, this Amber guy has might do it again. This guy is the James Bond of bus drivers. Women want to be with him. Men want to be him. Yes, yes. And we have well over 60 of these littler episodes over there. We release them weekly. And the great thing about this, I think, is that it's it's very much, you know, uh, each one of us has our trade-off week where we we have the tiny. And generally, that that same person has picked the main episode topic as well. So the person who has the tiny, they're the only one who researches it. So you get a story that Amber is telling that Scott and I don't know anything about. And so there's tons of surprises there for us. You get a story that Scott has researched that we don't know anything about. So it's a little different from the regular episodes because you get that, you know, like us us kind of round robining it and switching around. So that really is fun. And some stories we've told over there include Scratching Fanny and the Ghost of Cock Lane. That was a Scott <laughs> pick, in case you couldn't tell. <laughs> I couldn't find oh. a ghost of Penis Town. <laughs> Probably my favorite uh, that I've ever told was uh, Mall Cut Purse. That was a fascinating one. And uh, Amber told us tonight about uh, a really amazing bus driver, believe it or not. So, yeah, that's just a taste of what you can get. And then we also have 
our extra extras, which we release monthly. And those are longer episodes where we each tell each other a story or, you know, we've, we've, we've done various things where we will read sections of a book and then present the, the parts that we find the most interesting, stuff like that. So uh, it is very, very fun. And so you get five episodes per month. How great is that? $5, that's it, a month. Come join us over there. We're having a great time. So uh, let's start today a little differently. Uh, with uh, with the person that we're talking about today. In 2015, the New York Times Magazine did a poll of their readers, asking them the question... Polling your readers sounds painful. It does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we all know how uncomfortable could you that kill, can be. Well, the question was, could you kill a baby Hitler? <laughs> hmm. Okay, I think we need to answer this, each one of us. What, okay, are we talking like a couple days old baby Hitler? Or are we talking aborting Hitler? Like, are we p- talking about punching Anna Hitler in the stomach? Uh, well, I mean, I guess it's a, a baby Hitler, so he's he's out. He's out of the womb. Mm-hmm. So I would say baby Hitler. Like, let's say he's. I mean, there's no specifics in this poll, but let's say he's like, I don't know, um, uh, a month old. A month old. Do I have the? Do I have the option of kidnapping Hitler and raising him myself? Uh, no, it's just kill. Just kill. I think we should stick to the spirit of the poll here. Yeah, I would. I think I would. It would hurt my heart because he was just a baby. But if I could kill one person to prevent thousands and thousands of other people being brutalized and murdered, then yes, I would. But if it wouldn't have been Hitler, do you think it would have been somebody else who rose to power? That is exactly the point. Uh, One of the points that Brian Koberline brought up in an article on Forbes titled Why It's Impossible to Go Back in Time and Kill Baby Hitler. Well, you know, science. (laughs) But other than that. Yes, it's it's the grandfather paradox, uh, uh, but kind of writ large in that if you go back and kill baby Hitler then there's no World War II, and then when the time comes for you to travel back in time and kill Hitler, you have no reason to do it, and so he, you know, the course of history goes on as it actually did. Well, we know from actual time travelers like John Titor in Single Seven that whenever you actually go back, it creates a new time stream. So you can go back if you change things massively, then the time you go back to is essentially an alternate universe. Your time stream gets, say, another Christie that goes back. That new time stream gets you. Sometimes if you don't make big changes, it's close enough. Other times you got to go back to someplace that's very different, but this one goes on without you. Essentially, whenever you're dealing with time travel, remember, all times are local. Well, Coberline actually brings up that idea, and I'm just going to go ahead and quote him exactly. <laughs> Didn't think we'd get what into this. The, Holy shit. <laughs> right, right? What about the many worlds idea where traveling back in time creates a parallel universe? In that case, eliminating Hitler would create a new timeline without Hitler, but the old timeline would also still exist. Your time tripping does nothing to eliminate the pain and suffering of the original timeline. It might also create a new timeline with even more pain and suffering. After all, if Hitler didn't rise to power, 
Who's to say that someone worse wouldn't replace him? See, here's the thing. So, John yeah, there Teeter, is that idea, too. John Teeter did go back, stole a computer from the 70s, and fixed fixed the uh, the Y2K bug, but then we had to deal with, like, 9-11 and President Trump. Was it worth it? <laughs> yeah, so... The question as answered by the readers of New York Times Magazine regarding baby Hitler, 30% said no, 28% said not sure, and 42% said yes. Nice to see most of you have the stones to off a baby. I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah. So on that note, we're going to talk about somebody who almost did kill a dictator, but not by traveling back in time because she actually lived back then. And so had had a, a little easier access and didn't have to, like, find a freaking flux capacitor or deal with, you know, uranium or any of that stuff. So that is Violet Gibson. August 31st, 1876. She was the seventh of eight kids and, and born to an Irish family. Her name when she was born was Violet Albina Gibson. That is, a, a, I just have to say, a very white name, but it's right there in the middle name. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's one letter off from albino, so. I, I wonder if that's like the female version of albino. I was wondering that, too. Now, she was born to quite a privileged family. Her father was Edward Gibson, and he had been a member of Parliament and an attorney general for Ireland. And then he was raised to being Lord High Chancellor of Ireland. And he was in that position from 1885 to 1898. And that also raised him to the first Baron of Ashbourne. My goodness. Aren't we, Mr. Fancy Pants? Hmm, yes, quite. So the Lord High Chancellor was the highest judicial office you could get in Ireland up until 1922, when the Irish Free State was established by the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which would last all of 15 years. As we know, there was a, a little bit of turmoil in Ireland in the, in the late 18th and or 19th and 20th century. Just a smidge. So, just a smidge. But Barely yeah, worth mentioning. So because of her dad's position, she uh, was flitting from Dublin to London and back while she was growing up. She also did tend to be sick frequently. She got scarlet fever. She developed pleurisy, which Amber and I can tell you. I don't know if Scott can, but Amber and I can both tell you is very painful. Don't watch anything funny while you have it. Uh, my brother, my brother. I, I think there's a new name for it. It's like Latin name for lining of the lungs itis. But my brother had pleurisy, so um, at the time I was very concerned for him. But now thinking back, it just makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> She was also kind of, she seemed to be kind of temperamental. They, uh, it was noted that she had fits of hysteria, of course, because she was a woman and our uterus makes us crazy, apparently, according to old-timey medicine. Do you know, I found this out this week in researching stuff for my upcoming tiny. It used to be thought that women would not be able to travel on trains that moved very fast because their uteruses would fly out. Yes, I did know that. That's another one of those horrifying facts of history wherein people were very stupid. I want to see whatever scientific reasoning this guy had. Uh, Everybody knows if a woman travels more than 15 miles an hour, the uterus flies out. Yeah, that's pretty much the scientific reasoning. I think that's pretty much it. (laughs) 
So I, how fast does a human body have to go for its uterus to fly out? That's my science. And why is the uterus different from any other organ? Why isn't it the liver, something that everybody has, or the kidneys or something like that? Why is the uterus so unattached that it can fly out if it goes too fast? Back in, back in 1912, I was, a, I was in Hawaii, and I saw a woman fall from a cliff, 300-foot cliff, and she had a speed that was amazing, and her uterus popped right out halfway down. It looked like a pelican trying to eat a fish. It was horrible. That's enough for my old-timey story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it gave me, gave me time to mute and pour a drink, so many thanks. Thanks, nope. Scott. If, oh. I, if I would have known you, you had muted and couldn't like, reply instantly, I definitely would have kept that story going. Much to the horror of our listeners. <laughs> Much to the horror. I could have said something so, about it yeah, acting like she... a parachute and slowing her fall. <laughs> oh, dear. When Violet turned 18, she got to be a debutante in Queen Victoria's court. Very, uh, very, very 19th century Bridgerton situation we have going on there. Oh, my God. We're addicted to Bridgerton in this house. Oh, yeah. I, I, I buzzed right through it. Oh, Amber, you're, you're, you're going to nope. want to. You're gonna want to watch it. We are no, absolutely was... addicted. We we made we came up with a uh, we came up with an so Bridgerton is essentially it, it's a British royal family drama, but with black people in it, and it's never really brought up. Yeah, except for like one throwaway line. Why are there black people being treated as, as humans? Um, and it's it's honest to God, it's so fucking good. It's great and. Uh, Ariana, my wife and I, we just sit back and we think about like we see like all this drama going on and and all this all this scandalousness, and we just think of like we we made up this one butler that has to clean up the mess and everything, and he's just suicidal. His name is Jeffries, <laughs> right? It's it's like like they'll fuck on top of the table, and then Jeffries has to clean it up, and it's like Jeffries. Time to clean up the table from Master's fucking for the day. And we just <laughs> picture like Jeffrey's like, we talked about him eating a 22 caliber breakfast. Ariana had this great life like, no man knows the dare place, but by God, Jeffrey's is punching his own ticket. We get to the last episode, the last goddamn episode. And like the, the main character is sick in his bed. And I swear to God, the woman comes out and goes, shall I fetch Jeffries? Right on the TV show, we screamed and paused and went, oh my God, we willed him into existence. <laughs> <laughs> so, two things. First thing is I, I actually have an issue with any period timepiece like that because all I can think about during sex scenes is how bad they must smell. <laughs> it's the aristocracy. It looks like they might smell pretty good. They probably shower once a week, but I'm sure they still fucking reek. Like, I can't even, I can't. Like, to me, it's not, like, sexy. I'm like, oh, my God, he hasn't showered in six months. Like, ugh. Like, I can smell the ball sweat just watching it. And, two, I refuse to watch anything that most of the population enjoys. Yes, you have that thing, don't you? You and Beast. I, I, I've still not seen Tiger King. I probably never will. I just, I don't know what it is. I'm like, if everybody likes it, it probably sucks. See, at least I have the decency of giving it a chance, like Lord of the Rings. 
I don't. Like, I don't watch TV to start with, so there's not a whole lot that's going to want me, like, make me want to watch TV. And, like, yeah, no, it's just, it's just not my thing. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this train back onto the rails, despite the fact that my uterus will probably fly out if I go too fast. I don't need my uterus anymore anyway. Let's go. My uterus <laughs> is go. just fine. Thank you. <laughs> One thing I was unsure of was... Whether all right, so some articles would refer to Violet as Lady Violet, some as uh, Honorable Violet Gibson. So I don't know if she was a lord or, or no, not a lord, obviously, but a lady. Uh, if that title would actually be passed down to her, or if that's just something that American newspapers did because um, we're, we're ignorant or something. So, but one way or the other, uh, she either got engaged or all out married around age twenty-one to an artist. But he died, and so if they were married, he left her a widow, or one way or the other, probably brokenhearted. But really, people in Dublin adored her. She was kind of like the trendsetter. She was the queen bee. Everyone actually kind of wanted to follow her fashion of dress. So for a while, she seemed to really be on top. But uh, her dabbling and, and interest in religion might have stopped that trend. Her mother was a Christian scientist, and Violet sort of, she dipped in and out of a couple religions until she finally, around age 26, settled on Roman Catholicism. But Why uh, would you settle on that? If you've studied religions, that's one of the worst ones to settle on. There were definitely some aspects we'll get into that she was attracted to, and and yeah, but that, that did seem to be, especially in Ireland, was not really a super popular choice because an Irish and Brit saying at the time was a convert is a pervert. But you know what? Her, her brother Willie also converted to Catholicism in his adulthood. And, and that might've helped sway her too, is that like, well, her brother already did it. So she might as well bring shame on the family as well. <laughs> was that Willie the eldest who got the title after her father? Uh, that I do not have. I didn't have a whole lot on Willie other than he converted before she did. Okay. All right. So, yeah, it was it was not a super popular choice. Uh, in 1913, her father died in London, and the title did pass to her eldest brother. He accepted it, but he spent most of his time in France. And she actually went there as well. She moved to Paris the year her father died. And... She started to get into some, you know, sort of some activism in the uh, pacifism sector. So active pacifist. And she traveled around a bunch all over Europe, but she still had all these health issues and more and more piling on top. She had Paget's disease, which is a chronic skeletal disease that causes weak, brittle bones. She had to have a mastectomy. She got appendicitis. And so by the time she reached her 40s, the, the religion thing was really getting, she was getting pretty hardcore into it. And one aspect of Roman Catholicism that was part of it at the time that she seemed to like was the ideas of martyrdom and mortification. Martyrdom obviously being like, you know, dying for a religious cause and mortification was sort of like, harming one's physical self in the name of God or doing a combination. It could just, it could be a little bit of annoying things and a few painful things. Like for instance, chanting a whole bunch 
and then lashing oneself thousands of times. Like, why even bother with the chanting if you're going to do the lashing? At, at what point did God say, I want you all to be miserable? I created you just to suffer because I'm a dick. I'm an 11 year old boy with a magnifying glass, and you are my fucking ants, and I will get a holy hard on watching you suffer. At what point did God say that? I know. That's exactly my question. And somebody who had a, a, a deep, deep love of mortification actually was St. Francis of Assisi. Assisi. It, it sounds weird when you say it out loud like that. <laughs> I always say Assisi because. I went to Catholic school. They, I actually, yeah. it, whenever I was in Catholic, whenever I was in, uh, essentially my version of Catholicism, I was raised Lutheran, so we had catechism. Uh, we called it Assisi. Okay. I'm pretty sure that's how you say it. No. Well, one way or the other, he was really into that during during his time to the extent that he named his body. His body was like another. Uh, brother of the religion, he called his body Brother Ass. Uh, he would he would harm himself in order to uh, beat serious temptations. And one time when he was doing this, he beat himself with a cord and said, "See, Brother Ass, thus it is becoming for you to bear the whip." But apparently, the whip wasn't enough because after that, he uh, went outside and threw himself stark naked into the snow. So, As one does. So we're allowed to name our body something different than ourselves? Apparently, yes. You can call your body Brother Ass. Oh, no, Professor Hugo von Monsterschlong. Uh, nice. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this definitely... I have issues with this. Uh, I, I feel like... I don't know. There's got to be some sort of psychological underpinning to it that makes people want to do this, but I don't want to get too deep into those particular weeds. So as far as Violet was concerned, something kind of crescendoed as far as her mental health was concerned, or maybe more appropriately decrescendoed. And she ended up in an asylum. Was, uh, the issue was cited as being a nervous breakdown. She was committed and declared insane. And she started to get this idea that God had a mission for her. That mission was to kill someone. And for a while, it seems like the idea in her head was she would, it was herself. The, the, the object of her mission was herself. And there was also some like, you know, some of the mortification and martyrdom ideas tied into that. She ended up going to Rome in 1924, 25 for the Holy Year celebrations. She took a nurse along with her and from what I could tell from the newspapers, that's likely when she moved into a convent. And uh, later on, uh, newspapers noted that she chose Italy because there were no so-called lunacy laws that would keep her from handling firearms after being in an asylum. And Amber has a point. I, I do. In my notes, I actually have in 1922, she had a nervous breakdown. And that's when she went into the asylum. And it was um, after that, two years after that, she lived in a convent where she met that nurse, Mary. That, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I said. Okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, 1922, the convent. And then the thing is, or sorry, the asylum, rather. 
Uh, and the, the thing is, is that like some newspapers seem to be like, oh, she just went to Rome for the, the Holy Year celebration and hung out for a while and then eventually ended up in a convent. And some were like, no, she immediately went into the convent. So it was kind of confusing as to whether or not that was her true purpose or if, you know, it just it just happened after after some of the, the incidents she experienced there. So, yeah, I'm not sure what the deal was. It was it was very uh that, that kind of shifted back and forth in the newspapers. So did you hear about the whole thing with, with God talking to her? God talks to all the best people, I find. <laughs> it does seem to be that way, Just doesn't it? There gives them nothing but good advice. Yeah. Hunt down yeah, the president like... and tell him what a good job he's doing. Stuff like that. <laughs> Don't burn down the like... local movie theater. I'm just going to talk all over Christy. <laughs> It's this issue we have is the, one of the main reasons I can't wait to start recording in person again, where like there's just this slight delay. And so every pause you have, I think you're finished, but you're not. So you're not talking over me. I'm actually kind of talking over you, here's, but it's just the Internet. Here, Here's the thing. She just really wants to get back so she can hit me. That used to be our secret <laughs> code of like, Scott, it's my turn to talk now. And I'd have to edit out the WAP sounds every week. I never raised a hand to you. A foot maybe. Kicked me. She kicked me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, it seemed like there was definitely uh, somebody talking to her and saying that she had a mission and to kill someone, and that was maybe herself uh, for a while. Seemed to be influenced by that idea of mortification. So when she underwent three operations in early 1925 and it's said that she became really depressed after that and it's so that or, whole thing sort of seemed to influence the the religious zeal as well it really really pushed it up a couple of notches she was talking a lot of how she wanted to leave the world there was some question as to whether there was maybe a little bit of influence from her family's coat of armor which you open, oh, you heavenly gates. So either she uh, was talking about leaving this world uh, by uh, her own hand, or she was talking about maybe uh, the uh, alien spaceship coming and, and taking her that was hiding behind the comet, you know. Either one. I mean, <laughs> one's as good as the other, really. Sometimes you have to do one to get to the other. The yeah, yeah, it would appear that way. Well, in February 1925, she took a step to try to see those heavenly gates. She shot herself in the chest at the convent. The mother superior heard the shot and came running to her room and knocked. Violet actually was able to, after doing this to herself, come to the door. She opened the door and she said, hey, can you, could you grab me a priest? I need a priest. Definitely not a doctor right now, but a priest. Ricocheted off God. of rib. Yeah, that's that's some religious obsession right there. <laughs> so, uh, but she had she had planned. It's not like she was like, oh, I'll just hurt myself a little and then I'll get bandaged up and 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 I'll be on the mend. She had planned to not be around, so maybe she was thinking last rites uh, and, and didn't necessarily want any sort of medical help. So the shot did ricochet off of one of her ribs, and that saved her. 
the priest came in and there's a, a couple different stories about what she said to him. Uh, she may have yelled suicide and pointed at her chest. Uh, she also told the priest that she was trying to sacrifice herself for God's glory. And there were two revolvers found in her accommodations in the convent. You, you know, know you says, don't really think convent and guns. Yeah. They don't seem to go together. It says right in this book, sister, you're not supposed no. to do that, right? Her ideas about whom God wanted her to kill kind of started to shift a little bit. And she was like, well, it didn't really work so much uh, when I, I, I tried it on myself. Maybe he wants me to kill someone else. The following year, uh, her mother died in March. It was 1926. And within about a month of that, it, it almost seemed like, I'm going to go ahead and say it, it almost seemed like that event was a trigger. Bum, bum, because guns have triggers. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. <laughs> she picked her new target, which was uh, the most well-known man in the nation, probably at that time in Italy, Benito Mussolini. Mussolini had pulled off a fascist coup in the country in 1922. This is all going to be like the super duper condensed half of a paragraph history, by the way. This this is not the fascist history of Italy podcast. Here, so. Here's what you need to know about Mussolini. Number one, man bad. Number two, Hitler friend. Number three, evil layer with his own head on it. That's all you really need to know. That's it. That is, yeah. Uh, other stuff. The the king at the time in 1922 appointed him prime minister. And at, at that point, he was the youngest such in Italian history. Uh, Italy had been more democratic until Mussolini came along. He pretty much ripped that to shreds. And Italy, Italy became a dictatorial state with Mussolini at the head as Il Duce, or the leader. On April 7th, 1926, Mussolini had a speech to give. It was to the International Surgery Congress in Rome, where he was welcoming 600 delegates. So, a lot of doctors. He praised their heroic fight against death. He talked about the miracle of modern medicine and how it had saved his own life more than once. <laughs> thanks, modern then, medicine. Boo. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Then he uh, left the conference and he was walking to his car with like his entourage. And there was a big crowd, of course. It was at the Palazzo del Littorio. And of course, among this entourage also were some of the premier doctors who were attending the International Surgery Congress. So all these big crowds, they cheered for him, of course. They just loved him. And he gave them... The Roman salute, which would eventually become known as the Nazi salute. You know, oh. the one hand, I'm not going to do it, even though nobody is recording the video, but the right hand high in the air, palm flat. It's, has anybody here seen Tim? He's about this high. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so <laughs> and a, a fun fact about the Roman salute uh, that was the salute that was uh, given along with the Pledge of Allegiance in America. It was actually prescribed by the author of the Pledge of Allegiance when he devised it in 1892. That was Francis Bellamy. So it was called the Bellamy Salute. So when children in schools were chanting the pledge, uh, they uh, 
would raise their right hand, uh, palm flat, up in the uh, the old Roman salute. And uh, yeah, there are pictures of school children giving what we now think of as the Nazi salute to the American flag in their classrooms. And that is one of my favorite subject sections of historical photos. I can do you one better. I've been looking for this photo for years, for years. It's from it's from the like 1890s, 1910. Somewhere around in there. Um, it is a Jewish boys basketball team from New York City whose symbol is a swastika. Oh, dear. Yeah. Oh, dear. Which yeah. up at that point wasn't known, wasn't associated with what we associate it with now. It was a symbol of peace. Exactly. It was the crooked cross. Every culture had a swastika. The Japanese called it the manji. It was, it was just sort of like... Here is a holy place. That's kind of what a swastika was. It was it was peaceful. It was lovely. It was corrupted. Yes, yes, it was to the point where the uh, United States decided to stop making that the thing that children did while saluting the flag and adults. Uh, in 1942, they changed the flag code so that uh, it was you know hold your hand over your heart because it was starting to get a little weird. Oh. Are you feeling icky? I feel icky. <laughs> I feel icky. And yet I still look at those pictures of children saluting the flag with the Nazi salute and well, laugh. It's funny. That's why. It is funny. So Violet was in this crowd of people. She was described as disheveled and, quote, rather shabbily dressed in black. She had with her uh, a rock because she had thought maybe she might need to break Mussolini's windshield to do the deed she had come to do. Some reports say that, a, that she had a gun that was in her purse. Others said she had it wrapped in a black veil. For all we know, it could have been wrapped in a black veil and placed in her purse. I mean, you know, you know how it is. With uh, I haven't done it in a little while, I don't think. I don't know. Sources very wildly. That's the last thing I think about before I go to bed at night and the first thing I think about whenever I wake up in the morning. Sources. That's not creepy at all. Daring wild. <laughs> so. Oh, sure. There's love way. for my wife, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's that solo of sources very wildly. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're in person again, I'm going to make you guys do it. And it's going to be, we're, we're going to become like a barbershop trio. <laughs> it's my alarm clock ring. <laughs> <laughs> Amber is shaking her head because she doesn't like to sing, but I will make her. Catfight. All right. (laughs) So, one way or the other, no matter where the revolver was, it ended up in Violet's hand, and she shot Mussolini point blank. For a minute or so. Now, where exactly Uh, on the human body is the point blank? (laughs) She aimed right for the temple, actually. So. She was she was going for the the guts, and but there was a, a little bit of a, a, a sing along going on nearby him. Some students who were were singing. He turned his head just a bit at the perfect time or imperfect for humanity, and so that caught his attention. And he didn't quite get hit in the temple. He got hit in the nose. Violet then tried for another shot, but the gun jammed. And, of course, as I mentioned earlier, there were a lot of doctors there. 
you're going to try to assassinate someone. I don't want to give tips to people trying to assassinate someone, but this seems like a very specific case. Don't do it when there are around 600 doctors. Yeah, yeah. At but least, also, aim better. At least if you're well, going to throw, if you're going to get like a, a doctor conventions where you're doing the assassination, throw a set of golf clubs out there to distract them. <laughs> she did. There you go. She did aim perfectly well. She aimed right for the temple. He moved his head is the thing. I get that, but she could have done better. And also, the fact that her gun jammed, and I don't know, I don't know what this is. It seems like historically, we have a lot of guns jam on the second shot. So either one, they're not taking care of their guns, or two, yeah. this woman had no like, idea how to do the upkeep or practice with it. It doesn't sound yeah. like she'd practiced with it a whole lot, other than the time she shot herself. I'm going to go so, for three. I'm going to go for option three, which I don't think, I don't think anybody's kind of thought about. Option three is this woman was a religious fanatic. How much do you want to bet she threw like like bathed it in fucking holy water and threw like uh, like sanctified oils into it and uh, fucking like soaked soaked the bullets in in some sort like the tears of Christ? I don't fucking know. The holy chrism. Yeah, I bet it was covered in the holy chrism. I bet Listen, so. The church really gets offended if you mispronounce that word. I'm just saying. <laughs> I knew for sure this was the cock of Christ. <laughs> Jesus, literally. Uh, so, yes, it did jam on her attempt to get a second shot, and that was pretty much it as far as her attempt was concerned. Uh, one of the celebrated surgeons who was right there by Mussolini's side patched him up, and in the official communiques that came afterwards, the surgeon said, quote, the bullet perforated the nostrils and the wound was in no way serious. Now, as you can imagine, these crowds who had came to support Mussolini were, they lost their shit. Mussolini was described as calm, but the crowd was like, uh, no, we're going to kill this bitch. But Mussolini was like, no, no, calm down. Of course he Mussolini's calm. He's just discovered the joys of surround smell. He's got four <laughs> openings now to sniff with instead of two. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, quote, he appeared shortly afterward, made signs to the crowd, and spoke a few words. He commanded them to be calm and not to take reprisals. He said, quote, don't be afraid. This is a mere trifle, end quote. And he did. He went home for a bit for, you know, so to, to finish recuperating for a, a minute or two. But the crowd did not really listen to him. They dragged Violet away by her hair. It could have gotten, it could have gotten really bad for her. I mean, that's. That sounds horrifically painful right there. An entire crowd dragging you by your hair. Ouch. My scalp is like cringing in sympathy. And But the police did swoop in and grabbed her. And luckily they did because the crowd was going to lynch her. So uh, they, the police did actually save her life there. When asked why she did it, she said, quote, I don't know why I wanted to kill him. I had never seen Mussolini before. I recognized him by means of photographs, end quote. The newspaper continued to say that she did not express regret for her actions and she did not seem to realize her position. It is reported she had two vials of poison in her handbag. Hmm. Yes. Now, the poison was said to be iodine and another unknown liquid, and it was thought that maybe they were meant to be used on herself after the assassination so that the martyrdom could be immediately completed. Mussolini 
in the immediate aftermath got patched up and he just went about his day. He had uh, next on his schedule was the inaugural meeting of the new fascist council. <laughs> and so he went to band that. In, a great band in the 80s. I loved Mark Wahlberg in them. <laughs> Marky Mark and the new fascist council. That part where he <laughs> did that wild. great dance shirtless and then beat that Korean guy until he went blind in one eye was great. <laughs> so he... Uh, Mussolini was uh, slightly pale, it was said, and one newspaper reported that he, quote, was looking like a victorious boxer. So he had a bandage across his nose, maybe a little bit of black eye action going on there. From the balcony, he gave a speech that reaffirmed his commitment to fascism and said that despite any random Irish woman who might shoot him in the face, quote, the Fashima will continue to march and lead Italy to her high destiny. Some more that he said was, listen to my voice. It has not changed its tone. I also assure you my heart beats no faster than it did before. He said that he wouldn't shy, while he wouldn't shy away from a beautiful death, he didn't want it to come from, quote, an old, ugly, repulsive woman. Yeah, there was a lot there. And then, of course, he gave another Roman salute in, in mimicry of American school children everywhere. So... <laughs> There are some sources that say that secretly, you know, he may have presented this calm, I don't, uh, you know, I don't give a fuck kind of image in public, but secretly he was pretty pissed that the a person who shot him was both foreign and a woman. He was quite the misogynist. Rampant That's misogynist. embarrassing. That's embarrassing for him that a woman yes. is so close to killing him. Mm-hmm. Yes, because everybody knows if we put a gun in our hands, our uteruses fly right out of our bodies. <laughs> I've seen it happen. So glad you brought that up, Scott, because it's given me a lot of material to work with. No problem. <laughs> glad so. to help. I'll, I'll have I'll help you out with your woman parts anytime. Okay, moving on from that. Ooh, okay. <laughs> no, even if my OBGYN walked into the office and said that, I think I would walk out. <laughs> yeah, as damn well you should. As damn well you should. Yeah, that's somebody who has a legitimate reason to say it, and I'd still be like, nope, nope, I'm, I'm gone. Done. I'm, I'm done. I'm fucking you done. You put that speculum down. <laughs> just, just picture him, like, just saying that, like, an OBGYN saying what I said and then making quack noises with the speculum. <laughs> Which is especially disturbing to a person who has ducks. Yeah. <laughs> like levels and levels and levels of disturbing here. You, you, nightmares. You, which would be more disturbing? Would it be the ducks or if he made T-Rex noises with a... <laughs> I don't know. When you did the T-Rex noises, all of me just, just clenched. <laughs> T-Rex. It was the T-Rex. It was the T-Rex. It was the T-Rex. Yeah. yeah a, just jams in and goes, and then the T-Rex eats the fresh meat kill carcass. I... <laughs> <laughs> I am going to need so many Xanax before my next Lady Parts tune-up. <laughs> so many Xanax. So many. Oh, God. So, anyhow, um, the public was also uh, pretty pissed off. They trashed several offices of opposition newspapers and turned the contents of said newspaper offices into a nice, cozy bonfire. And Rome flew flags to celebrate that Mussolini had survived. 
Crowds gathered outside his home. Well-wishers completely filled two guest registers in the Porter's Lodge at his residence. And in addition, you had the diplomatic corps who was wishing him well. He got personal visits from the Duke of Aosta, who is the second son of the reigning monarch, so kind of the, the Prince Harry of 1920s Italy, and uh, the Attorney General of Italy. Mussolini did, as, uh, as you do. He sent a telegram to the King of Italy, letting him know that, yes, somebody did try to kill me, but everything's fine. It's all good. Don't you worry, Mr. King. King, sir, your excellence, whatever. Uh, his worship, the mayor, as we had in a tiny couple of weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> so a liberal paper, the Evening Star in London, said he had a narrow escape from the fate, which must always dog the heels of tyrants. No man can prescribe a re regime of bludgeons and castor oil for other men without recurring grave danger of reprisals. I really know, want to know how castor oil is coming to play in fascism here. I don't know. We want to force people to throw up? Is that part of fascism? I, I should, uh, why not? Is castor oil the thing that makes people throw up? I thought that was syrup of Ipecac. Both. The Ipecac is illegal now. Oh, damn it. Castor oil is still legal. I still don't know how. Okay, but it must be it must be a metaphor of some kind, bludgeons and castor oil. So, I guess maybe Nope, I can't find any way to make that make sense. But the fascist press was like this is all because of the anti-fascist campaigns and quote sinister foreign interests and wanted other nations to stop making anti-Italian propaganda because they really had control over that, you know. <laughs> You stop talking bad about us. No fair. The papers called her, quote, a lady of somewhat eccentric temperaments. Which, you know, she's a little eccentric. Just a, just, just a smidge. Just a, a tad. Whipping herself, committing, committing attempted suicide. Stuff like that. So, she is, of course, put in an Italian prison for a while so they can figure out what to do with her. It was uh, a little bit of a ride in the in the papers because at one point in October 1926, it actually looked like she might stand trial, which no one had really expected. And then the next month, there was some speculation that she might get swept up in a retroactive application of a law that had been enacted in Italy that demanded the death, pen death penalty for assassinations or attempted assassinations. So they were like, this new law... They might kind of pull her into this and maybe even, you know, give her the death penalty. But there were also a lot of papers saying that this was not a politically motivated assassination attempt. That's that's kind of up for debate, honestly. Uh, some historians maintain that it was political and that she was just called insane to try to sweep it under the rug. And so that, you know... So many this, this that would remove a problem for so many people, the, the Brits, the family, so that nobody had to deal with that. And especially so that there wouldn't be a trial in Italy, which would become, you know, an international sensation. And in January 1927, Italian prosecutors uh, agreed that they said it's not political and Mussolini himself did not press charges took a little bit more time. She was languishing in jail there for a while. But in May, after about 
14 months in jail. She was deported to Great Britain after, uh, and then basically they, they said, well, the attempt was due to total derangement of the mind. Crazy bitch. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you got, you got that, that noble blood coursing through your veins and it just makes you do the things that you got to do in polite society. So she wrote her jailers a nice thank you note on her way out. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, that's kind of nice. Yeah. She was accompanied to Great Britain by her sister and three nurses. When she reached England, she was examined and then declared insane, tossed into an asylum in Northampton. She did try to secure a release. She was writing these letters to very important people of the time, like Princess Elizabeth, who we now know as Queen Elizabeth II. And although nobody knew at the time that she was going to be queen, or at least not for a while, Winston Churchill. And she did write these letters, but either it was never really clear. Either she never sent them or the asylum stopped them from being sent. One way or the other, they never got to the mail. And... But keep in mind, you know, she did have some personal connections with with royalty and the nobility. And she might have even hung out with Churchill when he was a kid and he had visited Ireland. I thought that was really cool. Me too. They could have been childhood friends. Yeah, it was really cool. But this next part is not cool. It's the fact that even if the letter had gotten to him, he might not have done a damn thing to help her. Because in 1927, he was quoted in an article saying, if I were an Italian, I am sure I would have been wholeheartedly fascist. I have been charmed by Signor Mussolini's gentle and simple bearing and his calm, detached poise. And the reason that I found that quote so easily was because it was one column over from a brief item about Violet Gibson. <laughs> so, kind of think he wouldn't have helped her out as much as she might have hoped, but didn't matter because the letters were never sent. So... As far as Mussolini was concerned, you know, it, it came out that the general public opinion for most people, aside from fascists, was that there wasn't any real political connection to this assassination attempt. But still, it helped him gain more power. Everybody supports the dude who's just had an attempt on his life, and he comes out of it looking so strong and carefree that they're like, oh, he's so powerful. We want to give him more power. That's a really bad idea. He led Italy <laughs> through World War II, aligning himself with Hitler. So Hitler friend, as, uh, as Scott said, buddy of Hitler. And he uh, did use Hitler's actions as inspiration for some of his own. In 1938, he put into place a law that took civil rights away from all the Jews in Italy. And the Holocaust would kill over 7,500 Italian Jews. God, that breaks my heart. It's terrible. It, it's just... I still will never fully understand why this shit has to happen. So, Other assassination attempts on Mussolini's life. He was a popular guy to try to kill for a little while there. And I wish somebody had been successful. Six months well, before... Yeah, good news. <laughs> well, six months before Violet's attempt, Tito Zanaboni tried to take Mussolini's life on November 4th, 1925. He was going to do it sniper style, was all set up on a roof and everything. But a friend 
betrayed him, was acting as a double agent, told the police, and they found him before Mussolini came out of the building and he could shoot him. So Zanaboni and an associate in the Italian army who was said to be working with him were both given 30-year prison sentences. But in less than 20 years, Zanaboni was out, 1943, and he even managed to get some government positions after that. So, But I imagine that was after Mussolini died, probably so. Then on September 11th, 1926, this was about five months after Violet's attempt, Gino Lucchetti tried, uh, he was like, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my shot, but I'm going to take it with a bomb. He tossed it at a limo that Mussolini was riding in. It injured four to eight other people. None of those people was named Mussolini, or at least not Benito Mussolini. So then exactly a month after that, Mussolini was shot at while riding in a car in Bologna. I think that's how that said. Uh, everyone seemed to think that the culprit was one particular person. That person was 15-year-old Antonio Zamboni, who was then lynched. It's, there like, is, it's like they predicted it. Yeah, there is speculation from experts and historians that Zamboni had nothing to do with it and that this actually wasn't even an assassination attempt. It was a false flag by the fascists because immediately after that, Mussolini used it as the impetus to form his secret police. So there's some theories there. Uh, Zamboni has a street named after him in Bologna and two films have been made about that particular incident. So... But still sucks that a 15-year-old got scapegoated like that. He's just a kid. Yeah. Like, at least take right? out somebody that was, like, a bad person. Like, that's just a kid. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, like, when you choose somebody that young as your scapegoat, you are really running the mis- risk of martyring them, <laughs> which kind of yeah. happened. Well, he was a martyr. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but it, it, not intentional. But I mean, it, as far as the public eye was concerned in later years after after fascism sort of lost its hold on Italy, yeah, he, he became, you know, a, a martyr for the anti-fascist cause. In the 1930s, there were two more plots, uh, one one by an American. So, whoo, go USA. <laughs> Yay, um, murder. But, <laughs> of, a, no, assassination. Yay, assassination. There you go. But neither of these plots actually even got close to being enacted. Both of the attempted assassins were arrested and executed just for plotting, just for plotting. So out of all of these, these are all of the assassination attempts on Mussolini. Violet did the most damage. Shot him in the nose. She was the the closest. She was the closest, uh, an Irish woman from a noble family who had been living in a convent. Who would think if you were picking out likely assassins who are going to do the, 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 you know, come the closest to actually killing someone, you, you could do a lineup and you would never pick her. Ovaries, old lady. ovaries help the aim. You have the testicles. They're near the center of the body, but the ovaries are like kind of out to here. It's like a tight walker, uh, like a rope walker with one of the long bars. Ovaries steady, help you aim. Yeah. If it was a woman that would be in love with Jodie Foster, Ronald Reagan would be dead now. 
So <laughs> by the end of World War II, uh, stuff was so messed up. Italy was in a civil war, so it was fighting with itself. The fascists were losing the civil war, and then they lost bad enough that they, uh, ex- well, Mussolini and his mistress were executed after being caught in an escape attempt to Switzerland in April 1945. They were both executed by a firing squad who made absolutely sure that they did not just graze him in the nose. And then the bodies were displayed in Milan and hung upside down. Just two days later, Hitler died by suicide in his Führer bunker. So, fascists it just they're they're dying like flies here guys it's a good thing yay my dad i think i was about 11 or 12 i still remember where i was he had a little work shed uh up on mount davis uh, next to next to his house and there was there was a tv movie on about mussolini and it was uh, George C. Scott. George C. Scott, I'm 99% certain, played Mussolini. And I went, did you ever hear Mussolini, Dad? And he goes, I was in Italy whenever he, they, they killed him and his mistress. I saw the... Oh, wow. She, she, he goes, I saw them cut his cock and balls off and duct tape it in her mouth. Be- before or after she died or he died? Like, as far as you deaths know what? were concerned? I was 11. You don't ask questions after that. True, true, true. Can't blame you one bit. Yeah. Well, if they were to cut it off before he was dead, he would have bled out in about, like, ten seconds. So. Get a surgeon there. Cauterize that shit. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently I'm all about torture today. I don't know what's happening to me. Scott Scott makes one joke about your lady parts, and all of a sudden it's kill everybody. Cut off all their cocks. I don't. I don't think it has anything to do with lady parts or cocks. I. I really think this is about fascism and the atrocious crimes that these men committed. That were like, yeah, cut off his dick. Like, <laughs> yeah. Amber. Amber's got it. Yeah. It's definitely about fascism. It, it's. It's upsetting and and thinking about all the horrific things, injustices, and terrible atrocities, and and needless, needless deaths of innocent people that happened, that it it does make you, honestly, on a a very uh, primal human level, want to see the people responsible suffer, like a lot, like a lot. So that's, (laughs) that's definitely it. It's, it's, it's god awful, honestly. Uh, Violet Gibson outlived both of those fucking fascists. She died on May 2nd, 1956. She was 79 and had been in the asylum ever since being returned to Great Britain for two decades. Uh, Almost exactly, honestly. So, but her name and her legacy live on today. The very recently, like this month, it is currently March. This will come out in April, but this is all all ongoing right now. The Dublin City Council passed a motion that there will be a plaque put up in Violet Gibson's honor. The current location, they're going to try to get it put up at her childhood home. Her family supports this. And this is from Dublin City Councillor Mannix 
Flynn. I love your name, oh, Mannix. Fucking hell. <laughs> like, if you're named Mannix Flynn or anything close to that, your cock automatically gains three inches. And I don't want to look him up because I feel like no one can live up to that name. I'll do it. <laughs> don't do it. You're going to ruin my, my image. So, uh, okay. So this is what he said. Like most people, and particularly women, who have done extraordinary things, they are always pushed into the background. It is now time to bring Violet Gibson into the public eyes and give her a rightful place in the history of Irish women and in the history of the Irish nation and its people. I just looked up Mannix Flynn. Imagine J.K. Simmons without the mustache and a bit more haggard looking. Uh... Okay. I don't know where to go with, with that. <laughs> it looks good. He's earned the name. Okay. All right. That's good. I'll take your word for it. Yeah. I, I, I trust you. So, so yeah, there's this, there's this idea that's being floated around in more modern times that this insanity label that was pinned to her was not necessarily the reason for the assassination. That there, it, it was politically motivated. It was because she had a wrong dislike of fascism and wanted to see it wiped out and so yeah there's this idea that the insanity label was just pinned to her because that was what was easiest for everybody else and that this happens a lot in history and we do know it does happen a lot in history and so yeah it's, it's definitely interesting to see her sort of history and legacy evolve as as we evolve it's it's definitely a fascinating thing to see how times have changed and how we can view acts like this differently as we change so as far as other media there's been a radio program a book and a documentary on her life and as far as Mussolini's legacy goes uh it, it does look like there's still some 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 traces of fascism in his line going forward. His granddaughter was in the European Parliament in whatever far-right Italian party. And uh, she is the daughter of Mussolini's fourth son and apparently Sophia Loren's sister. Huh. So, yeah. That's shame. I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of got like a crush on Sophia Loren. And nobody can blame you. Not one person on this planet. No, Sophia Loren is what gives ugly men hope. Sophia Loren is like one of the hottest women in the world. And then her husband looks like a fist with eyes. <laughs> oh, so that is everything I have on Violet Gibson. Do you guys have anything? I, I do like this little, uh, I read a little bit of a short story called Dear You. And it kind of, it was, it's written by Evelyn Conlon. I strongly suggest, strongly suggest people read Dear You if they can find it. Uh, it's, it, it kind of gives, it, it's, it's like a short story, it's historical fiction, gives the account of events from Gibson's point of view. Oh, and I love that. It is we'll really, try to link it in the show notes. Yeah, it is, it is really, really good. Uh, I read it, I found an old PDF from this magazine called Accenti, the magazine with an Italian accent from Canada. <laughs> okay. All right. Amber, um, you had something? I, I had like a cutesy kind of little sad thing, I guess. Um, 
So Gibson actually would share some of her last years at St. Andrews with another Irish notable patient, Lucia Joyce, the daughter of James Joyce. Oh. Um, so she was put there. Um, it's still debated, actually. It said that she had a really complex relationship with her father and it was exasperated because he was trying to work on Finnegan's Wake and didn't want to put up with her anymore. So she was obviously insane because he couldn't concentrate with her around. <laughs> um, so she had to stay temporarily while he was finishing up Finnegan's Wake and she would have been there at the same time as Gibson. So it was just hmm. kind of like a cute little like merging of um famous people so and they actually one biography one biographer said that lucia was the price paid for a book and not even a good one so i i thought that was kind of cool though that like at least she had another irish lady there with her yeah <laughs> i have a i have a less complex relationship with uh, lucia's father i hate james joyce I hate James Joyce so much. He he oh. seemed like from that little story about Lucia, he seemed like a real asshole, actually. So um, he's an asshole, and I don't like his literature. I don't like his writing, and it it's just it doesn't appeal to me. It appeals to some people, and if that's your jam, that is absolutely fine. I have no problem with this. I'm not interested in getting over into a James Joyce battle, but. I just, it is not for me at all. And I managed to get through all of college on the English literature track without reading any James Joyce. And then like, I don't know, eight years after I graduated, an, an old coworker came to me asking for my help uh, editing a, a paper she was writing about him, and, well, about, uh, about one of his books. And it, I was like, I, I managed to go all this time. How did I manage to go all this time? And then it it, it, it haunts me after college. <laughs> that is ridiculous. But, but I think it's really telling about like women in mental institutions and, and how they got put in because it says that she was put in. Um, she began showing signs of mental illness around 1930 when she was romantically rejected by Samuel Beckett. Oh, I have Samuel Beckett's quote on my on my arm. Uh-huh. So she, I guess she had a crush on him. She asked, she, I don't know if she asked him out or what, and he rejected her. And so she was just like crushed. And her dad was like, you know what? I can't deal with your shit right now. Like. <laughs> from, oh, from one geez, type of crush yeah. to another. Beautiful. But it's, it's like really like if a girl cries, it's mental illness. Like this is that, this is that time. It's hysteria. What are you doing? I made my wife yeah, she, cry today. What did you do? Uh, she wanted to go to Long John Silver's, <laughs> and I drove past. <laughs> All right, you know what? I'm, I'm not even going to fault you for that because Long John Silver's is disgusting. Oh no, no! I was just, I was just teasing her. She, I, I turned into Taco Bell, and she went, "We're going to Taco Bell now." No, we're not going to Taco Bell. And I made the right at Taco Bell and just went went to Long John Servers in the back. She, she ended up thanking don't, me. Don't eat that; it's terrible. Like it's so bad for you. I've eaten there exactly one time, and it was the grossest thing. Like really? I don't I like Long John Silver's, except it, it, it's it, a salt lick for people. Yeah. That's all it is. A greasy salt lick. I, all I had was hush puppies. That's all I had, hush puppies. And I gave most of my hush puppies to the cats. And most of them are still alive. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I ate there one time just because I was like, you know what? Fried fish sounds really great. And I ordered what I thought was just like a little something for all of us. And it turned into like two giant boxes filled with fried salt. Mm. And I, I questioned every decision I've made after that because it was terrible. And I don't know why people do it to themselves. Like, I feel like your heart is clogging if do, you think about it. Do you know the only fast food restaurant that I think is legitimately super, super, super harmful is Taco Bell. Why? Well, I, I keep really close tabs on my blood pressure. Really close tabs on it. I've had a few scares with my blood pressure. Every day, the day after I have Taco Bell, for whatever reason, my blood pressure will shoot up 10 points. Interesting. Yeah. You're breaking Jackson's heart as a person who has hypertension and loves Taco Bell. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I actually, I, I enjoy Taco Bell. I'm really loving them. After the last time I ordered, I ordered two things and they gave me an extra 12 pack of tacos. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, all right. Yeah. And like, I'm like texting my DoorDash driver. I'm like, was this on purpose? This isn't my order. Like you gave me way too much food. She's like, just keep it. Hmm. <laughs> I'm like, but this isn't what I got. She's like, you're my only order from Taco Bell, so it's their screw up. Just give me five stars. I'm like, you got it. Hell yeah. <laughs> nice. Hell yeah. Somehow we, we got from, from fascism. I'm, I'm to, sorry. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all good. It's all good. So, so yeah, that was Violet Gibson and our thoughts on uh, Irish authors and fast food. So... It all ties together in its own it way. It derails real fast at the end of the show. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, okay. So my bullshit. Yes. We would really like to thank those of you who have rated and reviewed us on iTunes. We so, so appreciate it. And if you haven't yet, you should go and do that. And then we will appreciate you. So, and uh, we mentioned the Patreon at the top of the show. If you're not really into that, but you still want a shout out, which we give uh, for donations to our PayPal, you can do that via our email, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. You can also use that email to send us any show suggestions or just plain, you know, compliments, whatever. We, we take it all. And uh, social media, come by and uh, I, I'm if Scott doesn't post a picture of uh, American kids giving the Nazi salute to an American flag, then I, I will do my best to make sure I do. So come over to uh, Twitter and Facebook. We are old-timey crimey in both of those places. That's all on you. I don't want that shit on my search history. I know. Like, I'm a little <laughs> it's already in mine. <laughs> I mean, I didn't intentionally search it, but when I saw Roman salute, that's how I came, came to this. When I saw Roman salute being described as what Mussolini gave to the crowd, I was like, is that... The Nazi salute. So I had to look that up, and immediately I got to the Bellamy salute that was done with. The, I mean, there are pictures right in the article, uh, in the Wikipedia article. Just I didn't even have to put it on the social media. Go to the Wikipedia article for the Bellamy salute, and there is a picture of an entire class full of school children giving the Nazi salute to the American flag. It is absolutely like mind-boggling, and I understand that. Yes, it was not it didn't have that association at that point in time but you know it, it would come to take on that association so in our modern day very disturbing to see so here you go a little disturbing imagery for you guys can you guys see it mm -hmm. yeah there's a whole bunch of little wow. kids uh t describing how tall tim is <laughs> yes yes they are so 
So yeah, come over to our social media, Old Timey Crimey on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, don't forget about our merch. You guys really need to buy our merch. I'm going to do a sale uh, in, the, in the coming weeks um, over on the merch store. But it is uh, oldtimeycrimey.redbubble.com. So yeah, that's all my bullshit. If I have more bullshit, I don't care because my back hurts. So uh, what are we doing this week, guys? I am getting ready for the holiday. So um, I have to fill eggs and get baskets and uh, dye real eggs. And yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff on my plate for this coming week. So <laughs> I, uh, I got a transformer that I ordered a year and a half ago. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to goof around with that uh, this weekend. Uh, quite honestly, it's, it's a massive $600, 16 pound transformer that is just, it's ridiculous. Like it's the size oh of a fucking washing machine and it's just sitting on a glass table and I'm afraid it's going to shatter through right now. <laughs> I finally finished my Queen Victoria biography that I read. It was really fascinating. Very, very well written. And so my next read is going to be um, really deep in the, the history reads right now. Madame Forcaud's Secret War, the daring young woman who led France's largest spy network against Hitler. So I guess I'm in a certain time zone too as far You're as far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really am. I was torn between two different books about female spies from that era and just the, the, the French. I love the French. So it really, it really pulled me into there. So uh, so yeah, that is what I am doing this week. I'm going to read that. We're also getting some new furniture for the deck. So because all of ours is broken now. So I'm very excited to uh, have that place to hang out when the weather gets a little uh, better, you know? You know, it's snowing right now. What? It, it was sleeting earlier. Yeah, it's like it's like wintry mix right now. It's snowing up here, but it's probably sleeting by you. And then... Uh, uh, later on this week, it's going to be nice and then snow one more time on Thursday and then it will be nice again. So why the I fuck do snow. we live here? Why the honest know. to God fuck do we live here? I don't know. I lost part of my roof last week in the wind. So, <laughs> oh, goodness. Right. I came it's home crazy. the other day. Part of the neighbor's house is in my lawn. Yeah, it's been crazy. The weather is nuts. I showed you guys pictures, all the trees, like the giant tree was, was knocked over across from us and another tree was knocked over on our property line, but thankfully the wind was blowing in the direction that it was, so it didn't land on our house. And thankfully, like that's the side of the house where a couple of years ago we had like probably a year and a half, I'd say we had trees taken down. There were like five or six old pine trees that were, a lot of them were dead it was not a good situation. They were very, very tall and scary. And they would were right on the side where our bedroom and office is. And so, yeah, I'm, again, so glad we had those taken down because the way the, the wind was blowing in that exact direction that it would just knock them right on the house. And I might not be here to, uh, to tell these stories today if, if those trees were still there. So Christy, it's all the passwords. It would be the death of us all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, one final thing I have, uh, this, uh, you know, occasional thing where I like to bring in some weird fun fact I've gotten from a, uh, an old timey newspaper in my, my constant browsing of them. Jim Snicks puts everything to use. 
His wife has a bald head, and he strops his razor on it. The scamp. I mean, oh, what was wrong there. with people? Yeah. <laughs> so that's what was going on in the old-timey newspapers in 1858. So, yes. So thank you so much, listeners, for listening to our filthy, filthy words. They felt especially filthy this week. They really did. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so thank you as always and uh you stay filthy too so uh we'll see you next week bye fuck you bye. english author richard adams fuck you straight to hell why what's happening <laughs> figured if you you could trash on james joyce i'll hit the author i hate oh, okay all right that's cool yeah all right good show guys <laughs> My sources this week are Kate Hickey on Irish Central, several articles on Wikipedia, Francis Fahey on Italics Magazine, several newspapers via newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia. The Society of St. Francis, Nora McGreevy on Smithsonian Mag, Michael Shields McNamee on the BBC, New York Times Magazine, and Brian Koberlein on Forbes Magazine. My sources are wikipedia.org, openculture.com, bbc.com, an amazing site I found, JSTOR.org, who gave me a character study in life history of Violet Gibson. Awesome. Thank you. And Reddit.com. My sources this week are IrishCentral.com by Kate Hickey, IrishPost.com by Rachel O'Connor, IrishTimes.com by Frank McNally, IrelandXO.com. PRI.org by Orla Berry, SmithsonianMag.com by Nora McGreevy, BBC.com by Michael Steeles McNamee.